Well, hello again, um, and uh, again, let me um, say a, a very warm welcome to those who are perhaps new or visiting on uh, holiday for uh, the weekend. Um, we do hope you have a, a, a warm and welcome time with us this morning. We're carrying on a series that we began a few weeks ago in Philippians, um, and so it would be helpful if you could have um, that letter open in front of you this morning. Um, it will be chapter 3, uh, and it's a short passage, uh, chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. I'll read that for us before we think about it for a few minutes. Let me read from Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. Paul writes this. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only... Let us hold true to what we have attained. Amen. This is God's word. Let me ask God for his help as we spend a few minutes thinking about that passage together. Let's pray. The prophet Isaiah writes, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you for your eternal word. And pray that as we think about that word together now, you would please give each of us attentive minds and receptive hearts. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned a moment or two ago, we're thinking about that next chunk in Philippians chapter 3 this morning. And if you were here last Sunday morning, when we thought about the first part of that chapter together... You might remember that I began by mentioning my sense of sadness after visiting the university Christian unions in the city over the past few weeks. Not sadness over the realization that I am older and less trendy than I ever have been before, if I ever was in the first place, although I did feel sadness at that too, but a genuine sense of sadness at remembering some folks whom I knew having served alongside them as a a part of one of those very Christian unions who'd previously been red hot in their zeal for Jesus and for telling other people about him on campus, but who at now, at best, lukewarm. And I know that some of you empathized with that sense of disappointment, as I mentioned it last week. Some might feel so again, as I mentioned it this week, because you felt something similar yourself. But I wonder if, for for others among us, you might think that I'm being a little bit naive. Because, of course, people aren't as keen as Christians as they get older. That kind of enthusiasm is a young person's game. And actually, you might have thought, that kind of change, that kind of transition over time, it isn't necessarily a bad thing. Because, you see, settling down is what Christian maturity looks like, you might have thought. Christians who are a bit further down the track are much steadier, much safer than Christians in those early years. 
And if that thought did cross your mind last week or crosses your mind just now, that Christians get a tad safer as they grow in maturity, well, in one sense, you'd be right. Because Christian maturity in Paul's mind does also equal safety. We saw last week that safety was the reason he was writing these verses to the Christians in Philippi in the first place, didn't we? That's how chapter 3 starts, in fact. If you have Philippians 3 open in front of you, just look back to verse 1. Let me read that verse for us again. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul is writing to safeguard the Philippians, to make sure they go the long haul as Christians and together as partners in the gospel. And not only that, there is a correlation between that kind of of verse one safety and Christian maturity. And we see that in our reading this morning. Again, just look down to chapter three, verse 15 this time, where Paul writes this, let those of us who are mature think this way. And as a bit of a spoiler, that is our main outbox. That's our main application this morning. Verses 12 to 16 of Philippians 3 are all about how Christians might grow in maturity, how we might think in a more mature way. And yet, in one sense, growing in maturity is a safe thing for Christians to do. That much is clear so far. And yet the surprise for us in Philippians 3 is exactly what that kind of safety looks like. Because we might tend to equate safety with settling down, with not being quite so gung-ho, with taking our foot off the gas a little bit. But you see, that is not an equation with which Paul is familiar at all. He defines safety, he defines Christian maturity for that matter, a bit differently than the way we would tend to define it. Again, just notice that with me. Verse 13. One thing I do, says Paul, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Can you see the language he's using there? He's straining forward. He's pressing on. That, says Paul, is what it looks like to think maturely as a Christian. And therefore, a mature Christian is safe, spiritually speaking, but that might not look all that safe from a worldly point of view. And maturity, says Paul, is definitely not the same thing as settling down. That's where we're going to be heading over the next few minutes. Before we get there, though, it is just worth acknowledging that that might all sound, well, a bit unsettling, perhaps, maybe even a bit extreme or a bit radical. And uh, that's a fair assessment because it is radical. But it's important that we clock that that's exactly what you get yourself into when you become a Christian. Or rather, that is what takes hold of you when you become a Christian. Let's think about that under our first heading this morning. Think maturely, Christian. Respond to Jesus. Hold on you. Now, um, one of the changes that's taken place in Scottish culture over the past generation or two has been a sort of shift away, a drift perhaps, from cultural Christianity. 
So as less and less people identify publicly as being Christians in Scotland, being a Christian will no longer get you any social brownie points like it may have done in the past. I'm sorry to break it to you if, if that's why you're here this morning, but if anything, being a Christian will generally cost you quite a few social brownie points in our culture. And yet even though that's the case it is still perfectly possible for the Christian faith to feature in people's lives sort of like a hobby. Perhaps an embarrassing hobby, but a hobby nonetheless. So some people are quite into hill walking, and their weekends tend to revolve around that kind of thing. Some folks are musical and sing in choirs or perform in shows, and they give a lot of their spare time to rehearsals and performances, but you're a Christian. And so you give up some of your spare time to, certainly at weekends, to gather with God's people, maybe the occasional weeknight to to meetings of God's people. You give some time over to Christian things. And if that sounds anything like your approach to the Christian faith, then Philippians 3 may well come as a bit of a shock to the system. Because you see, being a Christian in Philippians 3 is nothing like a hobby that you're particularly invested in. It isn't a bolt-on, an addition to your life. No, in Philippians 3, becoming a Christian is a change in ownership. Just read with me again, verse 12. Paul writes this, not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Or as another translation would have it, I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. Paul longs to grow in maturity as a Christian, which we'll see over the next few minutes. Looks like growing in likeness to Jesus and sacrificial service of him. He longs to grow in that way. Why? Well, because Jesus has taken hold of him. He belongs to Jesus now. Jesus sets the trajectory, sets the direction of his life. And if you know the story of Paul's life, you know that that's exactly what happened to him. The risen Jesus Christ took hold of him when he met him on a journey on the Damascus Road, it's called, and turned Paul's life upside down. Paul went from violently persecuting Christians to leading Christians through violent persecution. He's in prison as he writes this letter. And if you're a Christian this morning, let me just say that that's your story too. It might not have happened in quite such a dramatic-looking way as an encounter like Paul's. But nonetheless, that same sort of change in ownership, change in direction, has happened to you too. Jesus has taken hold. And that does turn things upside down. Now, I'm aware that that might be quite an unsettling thought for some of us. I mentioned that a moment or two ago. And in our culture, it might actually be quite a claustrophobic thought. Because one of the the inalienable rights of people who live in a Western society, a society like Scotland, is personal autonomy. is the freedom to do what we want when we want. The American Constitution famously enshrined it. The three inalienable rights guaranteed to U.S. citizens are the preservation of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Can you see the one squirreled away right in the middle there? Liberty, personal autonomy, and freedom. 
And you see where it's placed. It's right up there with the preservation of life. That's how highly we think of, of freedom in our culture. And yet the Bible would say that if you're a Christian, well, you aren't free. At least not in that sense. In one sense, you are. You've been freed from, from all sorts of different things, but, but not in another sense, because the Bible would say you belong to Jesus. He has taken hold of you. He has seized you, and he sets the course of things now. But before you start feeling too twitchy about that, as I can sense some of you might do, that change in ownership, it is radical, but it is also absolutely wonderful. Because whilst it does involve submitting your life to God, acknowledging his rule over you, well, Jesus' lead, his rule, is ultimately, verse 14, an upward call. It's towards a prize. What is that prize? Well, it's a prize of knowing him, knowing relationship with him more deeply now, and knowing him and enjoying him forever. So Paul knows fine well how radical this is. You're kidding yourself if you think he doesn't. He is writing from a Roman prison cell. But he doesn't apologize for that, does he? If anything, he rejoices in it. This whole letter is riddled with rejoicing. We saw it last Sunday morning, chapter 3, verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord, he said. Jesus has taken hold of you if you're a Christian. He calls the shots now. He sets the course of your life. And listen, that is a good, good thing. Now, um, I'm aware that you may well be here this morning and uh, you're new to to all things uh, Christian. and, And perhaps that sounds a bit wacky to you. Because it's one thing to think of Jesus as being a nice guy, or as being an inspiration, or or as being a role model, but as as being a master, as being one who has has seized you, has taken hold of you, who calls the shots now, well, well, that's a different thing altogether, isn't it? And I can see why you might find that quite an unsettling thing, not least given what we've already said about our culture's approach towards liberty and personal autonomy, but... The reality is, whether you acknowledge his right over you or not, this Jesus does have the right to tell you what to do. It's quite an abrupt way of putting it, but he does. How to live. How to behave. Where does that right come from? Well, from the fact that he's the Lord of the universe. He's the king of all creation. He is the one who made you who sustains you every second of every day, who put breath in your lungs. And so you see, what we're talking about in Philippians 3, it isn't the difference between either belonging to God or not belonging to God. Because in one sense, we do all belong to him. What's been spoken about in Philippians 3 is the difference between glad submission to his service, the submission that leads to that wonderful prize, a prize both here and now, and a prize into eternity on the one hand, Or on the other, rejecting that call. Which, as we'll see next week, is a dreadful, dreadful thing to do. With dreadful consequences. So let me please encourage you not to dismiss God's call on your life. Just because it sounds like it's costly. Because to be frank, it is costly. But it is also absolutely wonderful. Wonderful now. And wonderful into eternity. That is our first point this morning. Think maturely, Christian. Respond to Jesus. Hold on you. 
But if that is, that might answer the question of, of what's meant to motivate, what at least motivated Paul as he looked to grow in maturity as a Christian. That's why we should take all of this, this idea seriously this morning. How is it we actually go about doing that? How are we to grow practically as Christians? Well, that's our next point this morning. Think maturely Christian. Recognize that you aren't fully mature yet. Now, there are a few stories that will grip an audience, quite like the story of a child prodigy. That might be in sport, for example, the footballer who breaks into adult competition at a young age. They seem to get younger and younger as I get older and older. Or in music, like the child from Colorado I heard about recently who was playing Mozart pieces by ear before reaching the age of 10. Even as some of you might have seen in the press a few weeks ago, in academia, the lad who passed his his GCSE maths exam with the highest grade possible at nine years old. Nine years old. I couldn't do that now. Never mind at nine. And that kind of that kind of commitment and that kind of raw talent or gifting, it can be an inspiring thing to hear about, can't it? But it isn't at all unusual after that sort of bursting onto the scene at a young age. For a trial prodigy to, to, to sort of drift a little bit after a while, to fall out of the spotlight, and not to fulfill their promise as a sports person or musician or mathematician. And what often makes the difference between those who, who, who fade away and, and, and drift out of the spotlight and the others who, who start strong and get even stronger, well, it isn't raw talent. Because you see, all of them have raw talent to a certain degree. What seems to make the difference is the constant desire to grow. Never really thinking they've made it. Never resting on their laurels and therefore always pushing forwards. And that kind of inclination of not resting on your laurels but pressing on, that is part of what it looks like to think maturely as a Christian, says Paul. Paul begins our unit this morning by noting that he hasn't made it yet. I wonder if you saw that. Read verse 12 with me again. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Paul says, you see, that he hasn't made it yet spiritually. And that he hasn't made it yet in two ways, actually. The Firstly, he says he's yet to obtain something. What's the thing that he's yet to obtain? Well, we saw that last week in, in verse 11. That's what he's referring to. He's talking about his resurrection body. Verse 11, by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul knows that one day Jesus will return and his body will be resurrected. And he obviously doesn't have one of those resurrection bodies quite yet. So part of him is looking forward to that day when it will happen. But that isn't the only thing he's missing. He carries on in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect. He hasn't made it yet, he says, because he isn't perfect yet. And so I wonder if you can see something of the logic in what Paul's saying. He's effectively saying, if you want to be a mature Christian, to think maturely, verse 15 you need to first recognize you aren't completely mature. Or in other words, Christian maturity involves recognizing we aren't the finished article. We're a work in progress. 
I remember another pastor friend of mine telling me about an old man in his congregation who was well into his 90s and who was still really wrestling with his own falling short. He kept falling over in a sense, spiritually speaking. He kept sinning. And the only reason my friend found out about that was that this old man was confused. He came to him upset even about why he was still struggling. I should know better, he said. I've been a Christian for so long. Why have I not got past this yet? Now, that sin still mattered. I'm not minimizing that at all. Neither did my friend. But he and I can assure that man that the fact he's still wrestling with it is a good sign. Because, you see, part of being mature is recognizing that we aren't fully mature yet. There's still a ways to go. And it is just worth asking that question of ourselves this morning, I think, if we're Christians. Perhaps you've been a Christian for a while. And of course, you know that you still stumble from time to time. You don't always get things right. You would never say that you're perfect. But at the same time, you've, you've, you've sort of tackled the bigger issues you maybe struggle, struggled with in younger life, perhaps. And if you're honest, you'd probably say that you've, you've sort of plateaued, spiritually speaking. And you're quite happy to coast from here on out. Now, please don't mishear me. I'm not saying that we need to be racked with guilt if we're to have any certainty that we're growing in maturity. That isn't what I'm saying. That isn't what Paul's saying. At the same time, though, thinking maturely as a Christian does involve recognizing that you aren't done yet. You still have a way to go, to grow, to be more and more like Jesus. Resting on your laurels is not an option. And that is our second point this morning. Now, they, they, they do often say, don't they, that the first part of dealing with a problem is recognizing that there is one. And that's kind of what we've just been doing when it comes to Christian maturity, recognizing that if we are to be mature as Christians, we all need to keep growing. But that isn't all there is to dealing with a problem, is it? Recognizing the problem, because we also need to actually take steps to, to, to actively address it. And that's where we're going to finish this morning, under that final point. Think maturely, Christian. Run single-mindedly towards the prize. Now, to illustrate the idea of ongoing growth, I used the picture of a prodigious footballer a few minutes ago. To be honest, though, that isn't quite the image Paul uses. In Philippians 3, Paul talks about the Christian life as though it's a race, and about Christians as though we are athletes with our eyes fixed on the finish line. You might not think of yourself as an athlete this morning. Paul says you are, if you're a Christian. Verse 13, not that I'm already perfect, he says, but I press on. Or verse 14, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Being a mature Christian involves running a race, pressing on, straining forwards towards a goal. That's the image Paul uses of an athlete. But rather than getting your running shoes on this morning, how does that cash out in real life? Well, the flow of thought in Philippians 3 suggests that it looks more and more like what we thought about last week in verses 9 to 11. I'm conscious I've had you jumping around quite a lot this morning. Please forgive me for that, but it's no bad thing to have our heads in what God says. Uh, verse 10 of Philippians chapter 3. Look at that with me. That I may know him, that is Jesus, says Paul, and the power of his resurrection, and may share 
his sufferings. Pressing on as a Christian means knowing Jesus more and more and sharing in his suffering, principally suffering for telling people about him. And again, that might not be how we tend to think of things because Christian maturity in our minds is very often steady. It's the safe course of action. And maturity is safe. Paul does say that in Philippians. But spiritual safety is not the same thing as risk aversion. It is not the same thing as settling down. It means pressing on. I do wonder if that might be a helpful corrective for some of us this morning. Particularly, I I was reflecting on on, on where this might land most acutely this week. I I wonder if it it might be particularly relevant to how we think of transition points in life. I mentioned already that it isn't uncommon for people to have a, a zealous spell in their Christian walk as a student or a young adult where you can't get enough of studying the Bible and speaking to people about your faith and it's all consuming. But then you you grow a bit older and uh, life settles down a little bit perhaps as you move out of what might have been a student or young adult's bubble and, and work is rightly deemed to be important but often becomes important for all the wrong reasons and often crowds out everything else. And before you know it, the, the white hot zeal you once had for Jesus has cooled right down. He isn't the one driving things anymore. He's, he's, he's a hobby. He's what you spend your weekends doing. A bolt-on to the rest of your life. Or perhaps at the other end of the spectrum, people who've been zealous Christians through their entire working lives, but see themselves moving towards retirement and just gently easing their foot off the gas. Sometimes through a good desire to encourage younger people into serving. Sometimes through a realistic awareness of the fact they can't quite keep doing all they used to do. But sometimes because they're starting to cool down a little bit, spiritually speaking. And can you see in both of those instances that growing older, numerically I guess, in the Christian life. Well it looks less and less like the maturity Paul's describing in Philippians 3. Less and less like the sold out zealous commitment to knowing Jesus and to making him known even when that's costly. In other words, it looks less cross-shaped. And instead it looks a lot more like settling down. Now I'm guessing that for, for, for most of us that isn't a deliberate thing at all. It just happens over time, creeps up on us. But I wonder if some of us sort of subconsciously make that decision for ourselves because we feel as though we've served our time. We've done our bit for the Christian cause. I'm due some time to, to focus on ourselves now. And that's actually why Paul's picture of the athlete is quite so helpful. Because just notice that he isn't only concerned with keeping his eyes on the right thing, with straining towards the goal in front of him. He's also concerned to make sure his eyes aren't on the wrong thing. Verse 13, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Paul isn't looking back. And that is pretty remarkable, actually, because Paul had plenty to look back to. 
We saw some of that last week, didn't we? He could look back to his religious achievement. Remember that great list of quite how prolific and fruitful he had been as a Jewish zealot last week. He could even look back to his past achievements as a Christian. He could reel off a list of churches which he'd helped to plant and and been pivotal in them being established, the Philippians being one of them. He could count numerous people whom he'd brought to faith in Jesus. He could identify the scars, the suffering he'd endured in, in order to do all of that, the prison from where he was writing this letter. Can you see, if anyone had done their bit to serve Jesus, had served their time, had shared in his sufferings to advance his good news in the world, it was Paul. But he doesn't see things that way. I mean, he's thankful for how God has used him in the past. We've seen that already in the letter to the Philippians. But he isn't looking back, resting on those laurels. He's pressing on. And again, I do wonder if that might be a helpful prompt for any of us this morning. Because there are many, many mature Christians in this church family. And multiple evidences of, of, of maturity, of fruitfulness in this church family over our 100 plus year existence. And we are right to be thankful to God for all of those. But let me just say very clearly this morning that Christian maturity is not only defined by what you've already done. It's also defined by where you're heading next. Let me give you a lift example of that from someone I knew well during his final few years. He died quite a while ago now. He served in positions of Christian leadership for pretty much all of his adult life. And he'd had a a really fruitful ministry for, for a large part of that time. He served in global missions for decades in a very exposed part of the world. His wife died a few years before he did. He was well into his mid-80s by that stage, and that was a big sadness to him personally. She had been a real partner to him in every possible way. But nonetheless, he decided that he was going to invest the time he had left. He didn't know quite how long that would be. He would invest it in his neighbors, because they all lived in the same block of of sort of semi-sheltered flats, and so he would see them in the hallway pretty much every day, and he got to know them and, and they him. And over time, he asked three or four of them if they would be up for reading the Bible with him to learn about Jesus for themselves. And a couple of them were were pretty resistant to that, were quite awkward about it, actually. And and that really was awkward because they were living in the same building. And so they kept bumping into each other. Two of them, though, agreed independently of one another. And both of them, who themselves were well over the age of 70, came to faith in Jesus. Jesus. Now, the reason I mentioned that friend of mine isn't that he was particularly inspirational or that he's a giant of the Christian faith. No, it's that by Paul's definition, he was thinking maturely as a Christian. Because you see, he'd seen God do some extraordinary things during his life. He himself had plenty of battle scars from his life in ministry, and he would tell you about those if you asked. But that wasn't where his eyes were fixed. There was zero sense that he had done his bit for Jesus and he was quite content just to coast his way home now. Now, when you spent more than five minutes with him, you sat and prayed with him, as I had the pleasure of doing quite often. You could see that he loved Jesus. He just loved Jesus with a white, hot zeal right into his 90s. And so he wanted to know him more. 
to know the power of Jesus' resurrection in his life, frail though he was himself. And he knew that that meant sharing in Jesus' sufferings, telling people about him, even when that was really awkward, when it was costly, time-consuming, energy-consuming. And he did that right up to the end, which, of course, for him was not the end at all. It was the prize, because he's with his Jesus now. And the same, you see, can be true of us. The mindset of the mature Christian, of mature partners in the gospel, it isn't only defined by where you've been or by what you've already achieved, by your life of Christian service, no matter how fruitful it has been and thankful you are for that, or your year or two on a committee of a Christian union or leading an SU group in school or by a long period of faithfulness as a church family. No, Christian maturity, at least in part, is defined by where you're heading next. It means pressing on, knowing Jesus more, sharing in his sufferings as we speak about him, all the way to the end, to that glorious prize. And so, Christian, and so Hebron Church family, let me leave you with the words of the apostle this morning. Let us forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead, pressing on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is of surpassing worth. He is worth more than anything else this world can afford. And that by his, his death in our place, we are united to him, as Bruce mentioned earlier, through faith. We can know him now and enjoy him into eternity. Father, we ask that for those of us who have been united to him, who have trusted in that Lord Jesus, would you please help us to think maturely, to be safe as Christians, even when that looks like it's anything but safe in material terms, as we press on towards the goal of the call of God in Jesus Christ. Because eternally, that is the safest place we can possibly be. And we pray that anyone here who's hearing that good news for the first time would come to see that Lord Jesus as being of surpassing worth. Would experience that union with him by trusting in his cross for themselves. We ask all of this in the name of our rescuer, our king, our Lord Jesus Christ. And for his sake. Amen.